lot of work to put something like this together, and so kudos to Steve. Well, I'd like to introduce you to my family. Up here, we've got my wife. Um, well, there she is. <clears throat> and uh, we have five children, four boys and one girl, and we have seven grandchildren, and we have an eighth on the way, and we have two kids that we've yet to get started pumping out grandchildren, and so uh, uh, that's where uh, we're at in life. Um, I want you to try and, you know, take a relaxed uh, view of this time together. Um, You might hear some things that maybe are different than things you've heard before. And if that's the case, uh, uh, you know, I'm not looking for rotten tomatoes to be thrown or anything, but just thinking like, okay, like it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything and hold on to what is good. So, you know, if you think something maybe is off base, just leave it in, uh, under the seat in front of you, okay? And if you think that uh, this is good, then put it in your bag that you're going to take home with you here today. Um, we, uh, our focus is going to be, as it says here, what can parents and grandparents do to transmit their faith and values to the next generation? I know why I can't see. All right. Um, and uh, it, it's my experience that, uh, well, well let's, uh, let's look at this Psalm 78 for just a moment. It says, the Lord decreed statutes for Jacob and established uh, the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach so that their children, uh, so that their children, so that the next generation would know them even children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. All right, generational transmission. And then this next one troubles me a bit. The Lord does not leave the guilty uh, unpunished. He punishes the children uh, and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Now, When I look at the four generations up there and the three and four generations down here, I'm realizing that we as parents, when we have that newborn in our hand, our influence is going to carry on for about 125 years into the future, for better or for worse, And given the fact that we're all fallen creatures, I prefer to say for better and for worse. And so this is a huge thing that we're engaging in uh, here today as we think about this. At the same time, there are limits to our parental influence. Now, clearly, the biggest influence in our lives are parents, grandparents, and so forth. But... Life circumstances, friends, school, the culture, the youth culture, uh, society, the media, there are many, many different influences that are taking place upon our children. And we have to realize that even if we were perfect parents, even if we lived up to exactly what we as parents would want to be, it does not guarantee a positive outcome in the lives of our children. Now, we as parents tend to do one of two things. We, uh, we tend to 
be prideful or overwhelmed with guilt. We tend to take too much credit for the positive outcomes in our children, and we tend to take too much blame when they don't turn out the way that we dreamed that they would. And there's a lot of false hope in the Christian community that surrounds this Proverbs 22 and verse 6, where it says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In Hebrew, there's, there's a lot more elasticity to Hebrew than uh, uh, we would sometimes like to think. And so if you were to go to a dozen commentaries on Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, you would see a number of different interpretations. The two most popular are, number one, to take it as a promise that our children will embrace the faith and they won't even give it up even when they're, they're old. And the other more popular one is that, um, you know, our children will embrace the faith and while they may get away from it, they will return to it uh, in their old age. Now, the thing that we need to understand about Proverbs in general is that Proverbs are general rules. They're not uh, uh, promises necessarily. For example, seatbelts save lives. Okay, that is very true. They do. But does that mean that no one has ever died wearing a seatbelt in an automobile accident? But the general rule is that you're going to be safer if you wear your seatbelts. Well, Proverbs are like that. The degree to which they're general and the degree to which they're a promise uh, has to be based on what the rest of the scriptures say. For example, we've got Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, very familiar to us, that if we trust in the Lord with our whole heart and lean not under our own understanding, uh, acknowledge him in all our ways, he will direct our paths. That is a promise because the rest of the scriptures support that as a promise. We can go to the bank with that one. We can go to the bank with uh, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, where it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your uh, crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing. We know that there is an earthly benefit to giving our money away uh, because, you know, Jesus said, give and it will be given unto you and, uh, in good measure. And there are many other scriptures that, that support that idea. But when it comes to Proverbs 22 and verse 6, we don't quite have that same level of uh, external support. For example, even within the Proverbs, in Proverbs 13 and verse 1, it says that a wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a mocking son does not listen to correction. So it is possible that we can be dispensing wisdom and the word of God and good values and so forth without, and our children could be mocking those things that we're teaching them. Or look at Deuteronomy 21, where it says that, I love this, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother 
and will not listen to them uh, when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall stone him to death. Now, believe me, this is an Old Testament law intended for the nation of Israel. And I'm not at all suggesting that that should be the law of our land. But I am confessing that sometimes I wish it was. <laughs> but the point is that look at the underlying uh, assumption in that. The underlying assumption is that the parents did the right thing. I mean, if they did the wrong thing, then the parents should be stoned. We should be stoned for the outcome of our children. But you see, children have their own degree of responsibility. So keep Proverbs 22.6 as a proverb more than necessarily a promise. Keep it as a general rule. Now, the other scripture that people sometimes get their false hopes based on is Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, where Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your household. Now, the first part of that, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, the rest of the scriptures, I, I can show you 150 New Testament scriptures that support the idea that we are saved by faith in Christ. So, so that's a, that one you can take to the bank. But the you and your household, we don't see that promised elsewhere in scripture. And so the first part of that verse is a promise. The second part of that verse was a, pro, a prophecy that uh, Paul gave regarding the household of the Philippian jailer. And sure enough, uh, his whole household did come to know Christ. So you see, you and I do not have enough influence in the lives of our children to guarantee the outcome that we might desire. Now, here I was at age 26, entering into my first ministry as a, a youth pastor, and uh, I was married for a year and a half. I had zero children, but in my favor, I did have a dog. And, um, you know, but I had all these parents coming up to me and saying, um, hey, how do I raise my kids? And I'm like, I can't believe these people are looking to me for, for that kind of wisdom, given my age and so forth. So I went and I, I saw a guy, a counselor about it, and he said, just give them the book Parents in Pain. So I, um, I, that's, I, I bought a whole bunch of copies and I started giving these things out, you know. But I, I don't give things out that I don't read. And this book turned out life-changing for me. What I just shared with you is basically, you know, from here. But all of a sudden, uh, as a result of that, I started realizing that, wow, there are things that we have no control over. And then there are things that we do have control over. We have no control over the outcome, 
but we do have control over certain parental things that we can do that can make the difference in a person's life. And so this is where your blanks begin to get filled in. It is within a parent's power, number one, to pray for your children. Uh, 1 John chapter 5 uh, and verse 14 says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know what we, uh, that we have what we've asked of him. Now, is it God's will for your children to accept Christ as Savior? Yes. Is it God's will for your children to live their entire lives under the lordship of Christ? Yes. Should you pray for that? Yes. Are you guaranteed on this basis that that is going to happen because you prayed for it? And I would say not necessarily because the human will is a factor in anything having to do with human beings. And so uh, then if that's the case, if, if God's a respecter of free will, if he created the universe with free will, if he respects free will, if he respects it far more than I would if I was the God over this universe, because I don't think I would allow a person like Adolf Hitler to have enough free will to kill 8 million Jews. But that's how big... God's respect for free will is. And if I have, if God has that kind of respect for free will, then I myself have to have that kind of respect for free will. And what would be the consequence if I didn't? What would be the consequence if, if in fact, I could just claim this and my kids would, would get saved, my kids would live under the lordship of Christ because I prayed? Well, then I might be, uh, I might, Ignore instructing them in the word of God. And then when they become of age, wave this magic wand over their head. Uh, as we see in the next slide here. Oh, okay. Go on. I'm beyond that. Oh, go on. We might come back to that one. Go on. Okay, this magic wand over their head. All right. Um, so I failed as a parent to instruct them. I failed as a parent to discipline them. I failed in responsibilities that were in my control, but now I can wave this magic wand of prayer over their heads. You see, um, the human will is a a factor in it. And so uh, you don't have to go back to it, but the Turkish proverb, not a biblical proverb, but the Turkish proverb that helps me think of this is that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And God, in response to my prayers, will definitely be putting um, his offers uh, in front of my children because I prayed, whether they are uh, friends that my children might develop who are Christians or who become Christians, whether it's a life circumstance, whether they'll just hear something in passing on the radio. I don't know if any of you get Christianity Today magazine, But the last page of that is always a testimony of how people came to know Christ. And God is amazing in his ability to use things to influence people toward Christ. And so, um, yes, we want to pray. My wife and I pray every day for our children and our grandchildren. And as it says in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 12, 23, uh, "...as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord." by failing to pray for my grandchildren. 
and my children. Uh, and so um, there's this man, uh, you've probably heard of him, famous man of prayer, experienced thousands of answers to prayer by the name of George Mueller. And he said this, he said, never give up praying until the answer comes. I have been praying for 52 years every day for two men, and they are not converted yet. Uh, the great fault of the child, children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, uh, they should pray until they get it. And George Mueller by the way, I like the hairdo. I thought those were, I thought that spiked look was a new look. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, uh, the story goes that one of his friends, one of those two friends, came to know Christ uh, after his death. So he never got to see it. Um, so we want to we persevere uh, in prayer. So no matter what phase that we're at in our parenting, we can always be praying for uh, our children. Um, number two, it is within a parent's power to uh, develop a positive attitude toward children and grandchildren. It says in uh, Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, that sons, and it refers to daughters too, are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. And the last line says, blessed is the man that has a whole bunch of them. And so... Uh, we have to, this is what God says about our children. Uh, he says that even when they're in their terrible twos, he says that even when they're in their terrific teens, um, you know, um, we, we have to remind ourselves that our children uh, are a blessing from the Lord. Um, if we think in terms of the uh, uh, phases, let's, let's go ahead, Christine, to the phases. Um, you know, no matter what phase we are at, we need to remind ourselves that children are a blessing from the Lord. But I will say, and I need to balance this out, that when our children become adults, the, there are proverbs that talk about how children can lead to the grief of parents. And so, uh, uh, so it is possible that, uh, but as much as possible, maintain a, a positive uh, attitude toward our uh, children. A third uh, thing that I found helpful is that it's within a parent's power to accept the individuality of uh, each child. Uh, if we were to look at uh, Psalm 139, it says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit them together in my mother's womb. Uh, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex and, and so forth. Uh, and so... God created uh, uh, people. He created them with gender differences. If we go to the next slide, um, uh, gender differences, right? I remember, like, my, my birth order goes, uh, we had a boy, boy, girl, boy, boy. And so, poor girl. But uh, when she came along, <coughs> I said, wow, this one's really different. Um, and it was gender differences. But not only that, we... we physically look different from one another, and also uh, our temperaments are different from one another. Uh, this guy here um, in his book, How to Really Love Your Child, talks about how um, within two weeks you can see differences within children. Uh, some are very active and some are kind of chill. Uh, some are very routine and structured and others are kind of loosey-goosey. 
some see something new and they approach it with curiosity. Others see something new and they draw back with fear. I mean, these are differences in our temperaments right from the, the day that we're born. And you think about it, those things affect the way that people look at life. And that's why uh, you know, children uh, grow up differently and perceiving the world differently and uh, having different interests and so forth. And so no matter what phase that we're at in life, we want to be thinking about um, the, uh, uh, our, our children and their uh, uh, individuality, their, their uniqueness. Um, I realize we're going fast, but we, we, we must. Uh, fourth is that it is within a parent's power to form a team to help raise your children. And Steve talked about that. Um, the, the ideal team, obviously, is a mother and father who are Christians, who are you know, living together for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health for the duration of their lives. I mean, that's... Clearly, you know, the, the divine design for things, that's the perfect team. Wonderful when grandparents can be added to it, people in the church can be added to it, and so forth. And then there's the real team. Uh, we live in a fallen and broken world. My mother died when I was seven years old. Uh, my dad remarried. We had an awful relationship. When my dad remarried, a dysfunctional family was born. And... Um, uh, you know, so so I like to look at the at the real world. So if you're a single mom, or uh, or you're, you've gone through a divorce, or uh, there's been a death in the family, um, who can I find to round round out the team? Who can uh, uh, talk to my uh, children about things like the birds and the bees? Uh, uh, someone of the same gender. Um, who? Uh, if I'm not good at managing money, um, who do I know is good at managing money? Uh, if uh, I'm not interested in the things that uh, my children are interested in, um, you know, who can I find that, that, is, that does have that interest in building or in the arts or in athletics uh, or whatever? Instead of making the child you know, conform to my interest in life, what can I do to add to the team? So no matter what uh, phase we're at in life, uh, we have to be thinking about um, and intentional about adding people uh, to our team. And of course, grandparents, you're part of the team. Um, You have to work with the parents. If you don't work with the parents, you're going to find yourself uh, getting less playtime, or you might even get kicked off the team. Uh, And so... uh, you know, but parents can be team, uh, grandparents can be team players there. Fifth, it's important to keep the lines of communication open uh, with your children. Now, each child has a different personality. Some are more open than others. But one thing that uh, this guy, again, uh, or, or this guy, uh, Haim Gone, uh, who wrote that book, Between Parent and Child, one thing that he points out is that children by nature are naturally communicative. They'll share their thoughts and feelings with us, but we as parents, in the way that we react to them, shut their communication down. 
For example, uh, we might, uh, you know, fail to listen. They're, they're talking to us and we're just not listening. Or they, we might uh, fail to empathize, like, uh, you know, they're, they're telling you about how they got bullied at school. Oh, that's nice, dear. You know, or we might uh, uh, blow up at something that they say. So next time they have something like that that they want to say, they might think, like, do I really want my dad to blow up? Do I really want my mom to get hysterical? Do I really, you know, want to listen to a half-hour lecture? You see, it's parental reactions that often shut down the communication. And so we want to keep the lines of communication open. Of course, we got great instruction from the Bible. I mean, so much. Uh, but James 1 there uh, says that we, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I like Steve's, uh, you know, uh, just listen. Just listen. I mean, we got to do more than listen to be parents, but, but sometimes we don't do enough. So at whatever phase uh, we find our children in, in life, uh, we need to uh, listen to them. Uh, I found that when uh, the kids were young, um, you know, whenever I was around, I was the, I was the hero, you know. Uh, when they became teenagers, uh, they could care less that I was around, and I found that I had to be around the home more time not less time, even though they had their own interests. I had to be around the home more time so that I was available whenever they were ready to communicate. And, um, and then, you know, you got the college years where they go off to college, and maybe at first they call like every couple of days, you know. But after a while, if you've noticed, uh, all of a sudden they stop calling. You've got to take initiative. Uh, or, uh, you know, if you have adult children, you might have to... Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, say, hey, let's go out to breakfast and, and talk. Uh, but so you have to adjust it according to your phase. Uh, number six, it is within a parent's power to communicate uh, your love to one another. By the way, these books are up here for the looking, uh, but this was a life changer for me, uh, how to really love your child. Um, he pointed out in there that in surveys that he did that Parents love their kids, love them, love them, love them. But when he talks to the kids, do your parents love you? Oh, yeah, yeah, they, they love me. And there's a disconnect oftentimes. Children don't always feel uh, our love. And so he came up with these three ways that appropriate touch, um, eye contact, and undivided attention, um, where, you know, you're, you're just giving, not, not cooking and talking, not shaving and talking, you're, you're listening, you're, you're focused completely on them, and so forth. And that applies really to relationships in general. So uh, th- that's good for all relationships. And of course, then there's the famous, uh, you know, five love languages uh, for children, where, you know, the same concept, uh, how do we communicate our love so that our children uh, feel it? So, um, uh, if we were to uh, uh, look at the different phases of life, uh, again, we, th- this applies to all the uh, phases of life. Uh, number seven is that it is within a parent's power to set an example of how your children should live. Uh, you know, it doesn't work to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work. 
Uh, actions speak louder than words. We want to be able to say to our children something like the Apostle Paul uh, said to his spiritual children, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Or uh, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, uh, put into practice. And really, uh, it doesn't matter what phase of life that we're in, um, setting an example is something that is important for us in dealing with our children. Number eight is it is within a parent's power to instruct their children uh, in the word of God. We've got Deuteronomy 6 that tells parents to, but Ephesians 6, 4 says fathers. And, it, you know, I wondered uh, if, if fathers in, included mothers. And that is specifically a Greek word for fathers. Um, and so um, I like to say that mothers and fathers have a responsibility to teach the word of God to their children but that fathers, um, there's a special emphasis on the fathers doing it, and often fathers are the ones that just uh, leave that to the, to the mother. And I'm realizing that there's a natural bond that forms between a child and um, you know, a mother, um, the nurturing, the, the breastfeeding, the, the uh, you know, care and all that stuff. Whereas dad's a little more, dad's connected, he's emotionally connected and everything, but his contributions are more voluntary. And so if dad thinks it's important that I hear the word of God from his lips, it must be important that that dad's involved in this process. Now, parents are responsible. It's something that we can delegate portions of to the Sunday school, to the um, youth group, and so forth. We can delegate, but we don't want to abdicate. We don't want to just surrender uh, our responsibility. Um, so, and um, there's formal teaching and informal teaching. Formal is like daily devotion, or family devotions. Informal is like, um, uh, you know, as we go along through life, having conversations. In my household, we always made it important that everyone was at the dinner table, and sometimes we had sports schedules to consider, and sometimes we had work schedules to consider, but we always found a time that we could all eat together, and uh, that was a time when we talked about life, and you know, we talked about Uncle Paul's divorce, and we talked about you know, all these different aspects of life, and, uh, uh, and yet I find that statistically, very few families really eat all together uh, anymore. And so uh, you might consider that. Um, So I'm going to jump to my point number nine here, that it is within a parent's power to evangelize your children. Um, I separate, this is part of instruction, but I separate it out uh, only because uh, it needs emphasis, we sometimes think that because our kids are hanging around us as Christians, because our kids are going to a church, uh, that um, they'll just naturally embrace the gospel. And that is not necessarily uh, true. Um, so um, we need to focus on it. We want what was said of Timothy uh, to be true of our children. Also, how from infancy you have known the scriptures that were able to make you wise unto salvation. We want our children to grow up with that. And he got that from his uh, mother and his grandmother, according to 2 Timothy 1.5. 
And you've got all these references in your notes. But in Matthew 18, Jesus speaks about the little ones who believe in me. And he, he says the children who believe in me. That word children in Greek, is, uh, it speaks of an age group of about 4 to 10. And so there can be children ages 4 to 10 that can believe in Jesus and uh, you know, become followers of his. And so um, we want to make sure that we're not just giving our children moral instruction. In fact, I don't have a lot of regrets as a parent. Uh, I do regret the fact that you know, some of my children are not walking with the Lord. Um, again, there's no guaranteed outcome. I do have you know, that, that sadness in my heart. And of course, we beat ourselves up over this big time, which has a big influence on what I'm saying, you know, to you today. But um, uh, I forgot where I was going. I'm trying to hurry here. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, uh, but I think the one thing that if I had a do-over that I would do is we really probably portrayed overly much that Christianity is a moral lifestyle. And I just wish I would have focused a lot more, and my daughter, who is walking with Christ, uh, you know, reminds me of this, uh, that uh, I wish I would have focused a lot more on, you know, Christianity is a relationship with God. So we come into relationship with God through uh, our evangelism. Uh, Number 10, it is within a parent's power to set up clear boundaries for your children, and, and, and you have to uh, do that. Can I just say that in setting up boundaries, my wife and I were very helped by a couple who were in their 80s who, um, uh, who really helped us think through what is really important, what to make an issue of, and what not to make an issue of. So when my blonde-haired son dyed his hair black and, you know, it was sticking out all over the place, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to worry too much about that. Uh, they, so it helps to have uh, older people. And again, grandparents, I encourage you to learn the boundaries that the parents have set and work within those boundaries. Number 11 is that it is within a uh, parent's power to praise or affirm or compliment their children when they find them doing right. The Apostle Paul always began his letters with some level of commendation. He had a tough time with the Corinthians, but he, he found some things to uh, recognize about them that were good. Um, but in the other churches, you see that in Revelation 2 and 3, where uh, the Lord says, you know, I, I like this about your church, and I don't like this about your church. Um, and so there was always an effort to uh, affirm, and somehow it's easier, right, to, to uh, criticize, to come down negative. But if we work at it, we can actually affirm our children and believe it or not, and this is hard for us to believe, but uh, affirmation is more powerful than criticism. When you praise kids for doing right, it's more powerful than when you punish kids for doing wrong. So I'll just leave that with you. And then uh, finally, uh, it is in a parent's power to correct your children. And we see in Hebrews chapter 12 that uh, our Heavenly Father corrects us. And um, hmm, I don't remember now what session it was in, but I think Steve might have said it. But, you know, parents today are making the mistake of trying to be their child's friend. 
instead of their parent? Who else in the world is going to have the kind of love and concern for your children that you have who is going to confront them, who is going to correct them, who is going to discipline them? Uh, I love my wife, and I love what she always said with kids growing up. You will have many friends over the years, but you'll only have one set of parents. And uh, we have a role to fill that, that we have to do so. And I wish I could talk more about that. Uh, there's verses there that refer to spanking. We spanked. It's not popular today. Um, done lovingly. I, I can't believe that, uh, you know, it does damage to a child's psyche. Um, otherwise, God wouldn't uh, allow it within his word. But I do like what James Dobson says that it's far more important that we intervene and that, we, uh, that our children experience something that they don't want to experience, uh, whether that's timeouts or losing privileges, getting grounded, whatever it is, making restitution, whatever it is, um, that intervention is the, is the key. And so um, let me encourage those of you, and it's so great to see some really young uh, uh, parents in here, um, Make the most of those earliest years. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read from social scientists that 50% of parental influence is accomplished by the time a child is seven years old. And that the rest of their lives, we influence them, the other 50%. And so that really makes that... uh, those earliest childhood years, really, really uh, important. And, but it's never too late to begin doing the uh, right thing. And so uh, hopefully you'll take what doesn't seem right to you and just leave it in the seat in front of you, underneath the seat in front of you. But hopefully you've picked up a little bag of goodies that you can take with you. And your notes are a tool I don't expect your parenting to be transformed by virtue of the fact that you've listened to me talk for 50 minutes. It's going to be transformed when you take these things home with you and give them further thought and figure out how to apply them to your lives. Thank you. God bless. Steve?